Good evening. The president and vice president-elect celebrate Reverend Martin Luther King's birthday with service. A scare at the Capitol, COVID and King, and the United Nations Tribunal on America's Killer Cops. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, January 18th, 2021. Guatemalan security forces on Monday cleared a road of hundreds of people in a mostly Honduran migrant caravan that had camped out overnight when authorities barred it from advancing towards the United States. It was the latest effort by Guatemala to break up the caravan, numbering close to 8,000 people within hours of its departure. The migrants, including families with young children, many say they are fleeing poverty and lawlessness in a region rocked by the coronavirus pandemic and two hurricanes in November. Late on Sunday, Guatemalan authorities said they had sent more than 1,500 migrants back home since Friday. Mexican President Andre Lopez Obrador on Monday warned migrants not to try and enter the country by force and said he was in touch with both the outgoing and incoming U.S. administrations over the migrant caravan. And Canada's main oil-producing province, Alberta, urged Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on Monday to mount a last-ditch effort to save the $8 billion Keystone XL pipeline and threaten to seek damages if President-elect Joe Biden cancels the project. According to Politico, Biden will rescind the cross-border permit for the pipeline on his first day in office. The move is being billed as one of Biden's day one climate change actions. The XL pipeline was a flashpoint in the struggle between Native Americans and environmentalists versus the Trump administration. Trump had approved the project on his first day in office. Keystone XL was one of the few issues on which Trump and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau agreed. And today is the holiday celebrating Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King's Jr.'s uh, 92nd birthday. The civil rights icon was assassinated in 1968 in Memphis. A group of admirers marched to the Martin Luther King Memorial on the Mall in Washington, D.C., where they held a peaceful gathering, said a prayer, and sang a favorite hymn. God, we are thankful for this day as we celebrate and commemorate the life of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, a drum major for justice. These stones are a reminder that if I can help somebody as I pass along, if I can cheer somebody with a word or song, if I can show someone he's traveling wrong, then my living will not be in vain. Bless all that is said and done. In thy name we do pray. Amen. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. We shall overcome someday. And at the same time, the atmosphere at the United States Capitol was anything but relaxed. The Capitol was in the midst of a rehearsal for Wednesday's inauguration of Biden and Harris when participants were seen running as a recorded message ordered an evacuation. Everyone's running from the Capitol grounds. And that tape 
seem to refer to an external security threat. The interruption was sparked by a fire in a homeless encampment a mile away, sending a plume of smoke into the air. During the rehearsal, stand-ins take the roles of Biden and other VIPs, and the U.S. Marine Corps band goes through its paces, including practicing the Star-Spangled Banner for Wednesday's performance by Lady Gaga. Officials say the fire wasn't a threat and it was quickly extinguished. But the decision to lock down is a symptom of the fear gripping Washington since the deadly January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. The lockdown was lifted about an hour later. Meanwhile, the FBI has been scaling up its investigation into the raid on the Capitol, some are calling an insurrection. More than 80 alleged participants are facing federal charges, and today a heavy metal guitarist, the alleged leader of a Colorado paramilitary training group, and two self-styled militia members from Ohio have been charged with taking part. The musician, John Schaefer of the band Iced Earth, was booked on six counts, including using violence. The band released a statement disavowing Schaefer and denouncing the Capitol invasion. Among those arrested are members of far-right groups, including the Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, and the Proud Boys. Officials have said the Proud Boys are an important focus of the FBI investigation. The group's leader, Enrique Tario, was arrested when he arrived in D.C. for the January 6th rally. He was charged with destruction of property for allegedly burning a Black Lives Matter banner taken from a black church during an earlier protest in Washington. After Tario was released and told to leave D.C., he had this to say to reporters. Supporters. What do you say to your supporters? But I love them. Thank you for supporting me and thank you for your continuous support. And we're going to keep pressing forward. What do you mean pressing forward? What does that mean? We're going to keep fighting. Fighting for what? For the same thing that we've been fighting for this whole time. For this uh, election, for the tyranny, for picking me up. Uh, just exactly like they did with Roger Stone. They picked me up with like seven patrol cars for a misdemeanor. They shut down the entire bridge, pulled me out of the car at gunpoint uh, for a misdemeanor. So we're going to keep fighting. How are you going to get out need to be. I don't need to be in D.C. to keep the fight going. Don't be by yourself. I won't. I won't. Sir, how are you going to get out of D.C.? Right here. I have no idea. Right here. What car? Proud Boys leader Enrique Tario, he says his group was not involved in organizing the capital siege. And as calls for tougher laws aimed at domestic terrorism are coming from Congress, some observers say the last thing the United States needs are more anti-terror laws. Journalist Chip Gibbons works with the group Right and Dissent. Several years ago, there was an incident where there was a white supremacist rally and the white supremacists stabbed anti-racist counter-protesters, the FBI opened a counter-terrorism investigation into the people who were stabbed, right? And time and time again, we see there's no shortage of powers to go out and spy on Black Lives Matter, Occupy Wall Street, etc., even when the FBI and these other police departments admit they're being nonviolent. So these agencies don't need more authorities to spy on us. Uh, the police would open the investigation or the FBI against the people who were assaulted and not the assaulters. Why does this kind of thing happen time and time again? You have to look at the FBI's history, which is over 110 years, I believe. Throughout its entire history, it has continuously spied on civil rights protesters. It has continuously spied on anti-war activists. It has continuously spied on environmental protesters. I mean, that act might seem very shocking, but it's very much in line with what the FBI has always done, which goes to show how these law enforcement and intelligence agencies have deep-seated bias and deep-seated political agendas, 
which is why they're always spying on left-wing groups. And then it turns out that some of their members are in open sympathy with people who are storming the Capitol. A number of people who partook in the insurrection were off through the cops. Should they have more powers to police us? I think not. What's the way around this? We've seen so much happen, and it seems like everything they come up with, uh, like the FISA law was brought up in order to stop uh, these kind of spyings from going on back in the 70s, and now people are being uh, targeted by FISA laws. So what's to prevent this from happening? So the FBI actually operates under its loosest restrictions at any time since the 1970s. In 2008, George Bush's lame duck attorney general rewrote the rules the FBI operates under. And I think it's important to understand the FBI, unlike the CIA, unlike the NSA, has no congressional charter. The attorney general sets the rules for what they can do. And, and the the attorney general under Bush allowed them to open investigations for the first time since the church committee into people who they didn't have a factual predicate to believe had committed wrong criminal wrongdoing or threatened to national security. So the FBI has been giving been given broader and broader surveillance powers, and there needs to be a requirement that for the FBI to open an investigation to someone, there has to be a factual predicate to assert that that person's involved in criminal wrongdoing. So they can't just open these blanket phishing investigations into free speech. What's going on in this country? Can I feel safe? And I totally, I totally understand those reactions, especially since we heard today or or yesterday that the Defense Department is trying to vet the 20-some thousand National Guard troops we have in in Washington, D.C. for fears for an inside attack. I mean, when you have police officers who are participating in an insurrection at the Capitol, I mean, it's, it's a very troubling situation. Chip Gibbons works with the group Rights and Dissent. Meanwhile, Saturday's expected white supremacist rallies in Washington and at state capitals fizzled, with only a few showing up. But authorities say they are expecting some trouble based on the Internet chatter. One video blogger, followed by the right calling himself Patriot Street Fighter, made a statement last night to his followers, allegedly on behalf of fascist conspiracy theorist Lynn Wood. That validates that Lynn Wood's information is true. The information I've been putting out here is true. Uh, These guys, our military, our soldiers, the patriots are in full control and they are ready to deliver the justice that this country needs. So what they absolutely do not need is they don't need any patriots showing up. They don't need patriots getting involved in any operations, any of the cities where they are marshalling their forces and their equipment to handle the not just the threats, but to take out this power structure on every level, anywhere they're going to operate. If you see military conducting actions, don't think you need to get involved in on, on any level. Because if, if you do and you decide you want to step out into the street or anywhere and kick some ass and help out, you may just suffer the same consequences that the insurrections are going to suffer because they are going to deliver the pain. Followers of the shadowy conspiracists known as QAnon have been asserting the military will rise up to declare an insurrection and arrest Joe Biden before his inauguration, allowing Trump to continue as president. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Turning to COVID. 
Governor Andrew Cuomo reports the rate of positive tests for COVID in New York is now more than six and a half percent. Cuomo adds the numbers are encouraging as they settle down to pre-holiday surge levels. He warned about new strains of the virus from the United Kingdom, South Africa and Brazil that could spark another wave. Cuomo asserts if these strains hit, the number of cases could go right back up. Cuomo addressed the National Action Network's Dr. King Day Policy Forum. Undeniable. Blacks died from COVID at twice the rate apparent reality. 2020 revealed the sins and injustices that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King railed against and fought against some 50 years ago. With all of our progress, so many basic obstacles remain unchanged. We must do better in 2021. And we must make sure this nation acknowledges the injustice that has been exposed for all to see. It is undeniable. Blacks died from COVID at twice the rate of whites. Latinos at one and a half times the rate of whites. Blacks had a higher infection rate, but were called on to do more as quote unquote essential workers. Blacks received less COVID testing and more exposure. Long term, we must address these so-called healthcare deserts and the comorbidities that created the disparity. The social inequity that called on low-wage workers to do more in the midst of the crisis but paid them less. We must address the injustice of our justice system that was exposed at low tide with the George Floyd killing, but which many of us had seen beneath the surface for many years with Eric Garner and Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin and Amadou Diallo and Rodney King and on and on. Short term, we must stop any more damage from being done. The COVID vaccine will save lives, but it must be distributed equitably and fairly. If we leave it to the private market, I will tell you today what's going to happen. The rich and the white and the places of wealth will get more vaccines and the poor and the black will get less. New York was the first and the loudest to call for social equity in the vaccination process. We must make special efforts to distribute the vaccine through black churches, public housing projects, community-based organizations, because those that paid the highest price for the disease should not be the lowest on the list to receive the vaccine. In New York, we're doing just that. But the challenge is even greater because there are many members of the black community who distrust the vaccine because they distrust the system that created it. As you know, we're doing vaccines all across the state and anecdotal reports suggest acceptance of the vaccine is lower in parts of the black community. Now, I understand their distrust. Let's be clear. I don't trust the current federal administration either but I trust science and I trust New Yorkers and we have had New York's doctors, the best on the planet, review the vaccine and they vouch for it. I will take it as soon as I am eligible. My mother is taking it. My daughters will take it when they are eligible, but I understand the skepticism. No one can ameliorate the justif or justify the victimization and discrimination the black community has endured. Something as horrific as the Tuskegee experiment can never be explained away. But we must deal with the here and now, and we cannot compound the injustice, the loss, the death that COVID has caused. Together, let's demand fairness in distribution 
and let's work towards community acceptance of the vaccine. It will save lives. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. And it's been moving week at the White House as a reluctant Trump administration is unpacking their bags and loading moving vans prior to the incoming Biden administration. Most of the goodbyes have come from Vice President Mike Pence, estranged from Trump since the vice president refused to declare Trump the victor in the election. But today, First Lady Melania Trump urged her fans one last time to be best. In all circumstances, I ask every American to be an ambassador of be best to focus on what unites us, to raise above what divides us, to always choose love over hatred, peace over violence, and others before yourself. Together, as one national family, we can continue to be the light of hope for future generations and carry on America's legacy of rising our nation to greater heights through our spirit of courage goodness, and fate. First Lady Melania Trump, the incoming vice president-elect Kamala Harris announced her resignation from the United States Senate as she prepares to take on her new gig in the White House. Harris participated today in a day of service at a food bank as Biden and his wife Jill joined an assembly line in the parking lot of Phil Abundance and helped fill about 150 boxes with fresh fruit and groceries. In honor of the day of service where we recognize and pay tribute to the work of Dr. King, I think it's so important to remember that Dr. King was killed in large part, I believe, because he was on the verge of bringing together the civil rights movement around racial justice with the fight for economic justice. And when we look at where we are as a country today, When we look at recent events, we know that the fight that Dr. King was engaged in is still a fight in America, which is to recognize the connection and to recognize our collective responsibility to address these injustices. Today in America, one in six families is describing their household as being hungry. Today in America, one in five is describing an inability to pay rent. One in three is describing an inability to pay their bills. So we are here today as part of what we collectively, all of us who are volunteering, see as our responsibility as part of Dr. King's legacy. And as Kamala Harris, she downplayed the D.C. jitters and fears of violent protests on Wednesday. I am very much looking forward to be sworn in as the next vice president of the United States. And I will walk there to that moment proudly with my head up and my shoulder back. Incoming Vice President Kamala Harris. And today was day one of the International Commission of Inquiry on Systematic Racist Police Violence Against People of African Descent in the United States, beginning 18 days of hearings over the next three weeks. The National Lawyers Guild, National Conference of Black Lawyers, and the International Association of Democratic Lawyers are among the co-sponsors. Organizers say they've assembled a commission of experts from around the world to investigate police violence against black people in the United States. Today's hearings began with a lawyer for the family of Eric Garner, who was killed in a police chokehold, exclaiming, I can't breathe, as NYPD officer Daniel Pantaleo held him in a chokehold. Attorney Jonathan Moore, thank you. There were many officers involved. The medical examiner determined that the death of Eric Garner was a combination of neck and chest compression. In other words, there was somebody who had his arm around his neck. They were on top of him, on his back. He was face first on the ground. 
So that could only have been accomplished by not just one, but several officers being on top of him. And if you look at the video, which I, I'm sure people have seen many times, you see, you see that, in fact, is what happened. None of those ever officers were, were even, ever even brought up on disciplinary charges. The only officer who was charged with was Pantalone. I first got involved in New York police and use of deadly force on people of color in the Michael Stewart case. Many people may remember back in 1983, Michael Stewart was a young graffiti artist who was killed by African-American graffiti artists who was killed by officers who were assigned to the Trans Authority Police Department. That case began, unfortunately, a long series of cases over the years, including uh, Abner Louima, uh, Abidou Diallo, Sean Bell, Eric Garner. These are just one of the many cases where the police have used excessive force against people of color without justification. The question you have to ask yourself is, is the police department of the city of New York, do they engage in discrimination against people of color? I would have to say to you, quite unequivocally that the answer has to be yes. One of the other cases I was involved in over the years here in New York City was the issue around stop and frisk. And it ties to the Eric Garner case. The stop and frisk case was a class action brought by residents of the city of New York alleging that the police engaging in street encounters uh, with mostly people of color engaged in racial profiling. That's a claim that's often made but rarely proved. But in 2013, we actually had a 10-week trial in the federal court where we ended up with a judgment, not a settlement, but a judgment against the New York Police Department where the court found that as a matter of policy and practice over a number of years, the police department had engaged in a policy of racial profiling. Why is that relevant to Eric Garner's case? Because the encounter with Eric Garner began as a run-of-the-mill ordinary street encounter, a stop, possibly question and frisk, that turned bad and it, and it illustrates the true damage, the true harm that comes from allowing a police department to make, allowing officers to make decisions based upon improper motivations. In fact, the police in the Eric Garner case had no justification for stopping or searching or trying to arrest Eric Garner because there was no credible report that he engaged in a felony. You think, oh, stop and frisk, it's a short encounter on the street. How intrusive could it be? Well, we see in the Eric Garner case how intrusive it could be. And the mother of a young black man killed senselessly in California spoke about the near impossibility of getting justice against her son's killer. My name is Dominic Archibald, and I am the mother of Nathaniel Nate Pickett II. Nate was walking home from a store when he apparently walked in the crosswalk in accordance with the light in front of the service car that the deputy was driving. Apparently seeing a tall black male, the deputy may have profiled Nate and assumed that he was a criminal. He, the deputy, made a U-turn and followed Nate onto the grounds of the motel where he was residing. The deputy who was accompanied by a civilian ride-along had reportedly only recently completed his probationary period. He was as close to the training that everyone says will make a difference as any new recruit. So training most likely was not the issue. Deputy Woods at one point said that he stopped Nate on a consensual stop. He said that he stopped Nate because he saw him jump a fence. Which one was it? How did this consensual or casual stop turn into an attempted arrest? An arrest for absolutely no reason. 
If it was a consensual stop, then Nate was authorized to leave. Nate turned, ran, tripped, and he was beaten by the deputy and the civilian. The deputy then shot Nate twice at close range. No first aid was administered and no medical backup was called. Before the sun rose, a fire truck came to the scene and washed away all the evidence. The story was relegated to an inch by inch news story in a small town newspaper. In that story, as a standard, Nate was villainized. More time seems to be spent looking for negatives on the victim or creating a narrative that makes the deceased the offender than getting facts and evidence. Regardless of the false narrative, the deputy did not know that there were 16 working cameras that would decisively disprove his version. So he simply changed the story. He said he stopped Nate because he looked at him several times very quickly and suspiciously as he crossed the street. The deputy fabricated a story and changed it when it did not work for him. I guess that was one of his rights. Is my son dead because he looked at someone? Where were his rights? Records indicate that the deputy never went on as much as administrative leave. Before the civil trial in Nate's case, the deputy shot another person six times. Finally appears he was taken off the streets, not fired or placed on administrative leave, just moved to another assignment. And the attorney for the family of Nate Pickett is Dale Gallippo. He says the police and city officials in California were organized liars. The expert conceded before the jury, and this was a defense expert. In studying the video frame by frame, he could see the 10 to 20 punches by the officer to Nate. But he could not see one punch in any frame of the video from Nate to the officer. Zero punches. We also were able to show how could the officer have been unconscious if he was doing all the things he did. Giving commands, pulling out his gun, pointing his gun, shooting Nate, calling in that shots were fired afterwards. So we believe the jury and any reasonable trier of fact in looking at the facts would clearly conclude that the officers claim that Nate punched him 10 or 20 times forcefully in the head was completely untrue. And that's quite frankly what district attorney's offices need to do. They can't just take the officer's account of it. They have to look at the evidence carefully and weigh it to see whether or not what they're saying is actually supported by evidence or just something they were told to say. In this case, the officer did not give a statement for 28 days after the incident. The second reason that they gave for shooting was that Nate was grabbing the officer's gun. That was the second version they gave. And once again, we were able to show that never occurred. First of all, it's never seen on the video. Second of all, the ride-along never saw it. Third of all, witness Kennedy never saw it. There was no fingerprints on the gun. There was no DNA on the gun. The officer never yelled out that he was grabbing for his gun. In fact, there's an audio when the arriving officer arrived trying to figure out why the shooting occurred. He asked Kyle Woods, did he go for your gun? almost suggesting that might be the the playbook plan here to say 
the officer said, quote, I don't know. Well, by the time of trial, they tried early on to stick with that version. But once we discredited them before the jury, by the end of the trial, they practically abandoned that theory of the case because they realized that no one was going to believe it. Another thing that was interesting forensically in the case was that the officer claimed that the muzzle of his gun was two or three feet away from Nate when he fired the two shots because he was pulling his gun back trying to protect it from Nate grabbing him. The medical examiner who testified indicated both shots were had muzzle stamps on them so that the gun had to be pressed into the chest of Nate at the time of the discharge of the shots. It could not have been separated even by a few inches. And that's some of the news for Monday, January 18th, 2021. The news was produced by Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City for the WBAI News, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.